All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings. We're going to finish chapter 6 and do all of chapter 7 tonight. 2 Kings chapter 6. You remember last week we looked at this ministry of Elisha the prophet and In chapter 6, we saw him performing the miracle of retrieving the axe head out of the Jordan River. Remember the, the, the prophets, the school of the prophets that Elisha had founded, or at least Elijah had, and Elisha was continuing that tradition. They became, uh, too, too many so to, to gather into one place. So one of them came up with the idea, well, why don't we go and build another place down uh, near the Jordan where the, where the trees are. And so they go together and they do that. They do that very thing. They cut down the beams and the rafters and they get things going. But in the process of that, they lose the axe head that was borrowed and uh, the Lord put it upon uh, Elisha's heart to throw in a, a, a shrub or a, a branch of some kind and the axe head floated, and wouldn't you agree with me that that defies logic, it defies physics, it defies the natural, and that's the God we serve. We serve a God who is outside of time, we serve a God who made all of the laws of nature, he made gravity, and he can choose at will to defy those things, and he has shown himself and shown us in his word that he can do those things. So really, The question to all of us tonight is, is there anything too hard for God? Yeah, there isn't. There's nothing too hard for him. He can't can't build a rock. He can't make a rock that he can't, you know, people say, oh, what one thing, what, what, you know, what can't God do? You know, can he make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it up? You know, and that kind of stuff is just dumb, you know? So if anybody tells you that to say, you know, that's a really dumb question. Love you, but not such a smart question. So we saw that, and then immediately on the cusp of that, we see that the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and remember that as he was doing that, his battle plan was being made known to Elisha the prophet, and Elisha was telling the king of Israel, whose name was Joram, uh, he reigned from 852 to 841 B.C., And the king of Syria became really perturbed by this, thinking that somebody, there was a mole in the midst of his his army. And so he examines the army and they say, no, we've done nothing of the sort. But understand this, there's a prophet in Israel who knows the very things that you're saying in your bedchamber. And so what does the king do? He gets uh, flustered, frustrated, and he's like, well, we're going to go take this guy out. We're going to go kidnap him. So he gets a, a group of men, not his entire army, but just a subset of that army. They go down uh, to where Elisha was living, and they surround the house. And remember, Elisha's servant, who was not Gehazi at this point, this, this has to be a different servant of Elisha's at this time. But the servant came out at night and saw that the the town, the area where uh, Elisha was staying was surrounded by the Syrian, uh, a a portion of the Syrian army. And the Lord gave to Elisha this understanding and this vision of the army that was surrounding them. (laughs) And I always like that because, you know, we always size things up in the natural and God gave to Elisha this supernatural understanding and he saw the chariots of the horses and the chariots of fire surrounding the Syrian army 
And so Elisha said, Lord, I pray that my, you know, you'd open my servant's eyes to see that. And sure enough, the Lord does, and he sees it. And all of a sudden, we realize that greater is he that is with us than he that is in the world. Amen? And so here's a practical um, understanding of that New Testament scripture back in the Old Testament. Because God has not changed. He's not, he, he, he hasn't changed at all. He's the same God. And you know, before we get into this next section in verse 24, um, well, actually, let me finish the, the story of what happened here. And by the way, I say story, but you know that it's not a story. This is real history, right? I always like to make mention of that because we often say story, and a story is, to me, something fictional. But there's nothing fictional about this. This really happened in history. And so after this, um, as the army started to descend down upon Elisha and his servant, he calls on the Lord and he strikes the men with blindness. And so here they are trying to, they're blind, they can't get anywhere. And they finally get to Elisha. And Elisha says, this is the wrong town, the wrong place. Everything is wrong about this. Let me take you where you need to be and the man that you need to see. And so he leads the Syrian army, a portion of it anyway, to Samaria, the capital of the northern ten tribes, where the whole army is amassed because that's where the king is dwelling in the capital city. And so finally, they get them in there, and the Israeli army is surrounding them now. And then, the, and then Elisha says, Lord, open their eyes. And the Lord opens the Syrians' eyes, and they see that, uh-oh. <laughs> and then the king, Joram, says, Father, Father, should we kill them? Should we kill them? This is a perfect opportunity. It's going to be a slaughter. And basically, Elisha says, um, like Jesus said to his disciples, remember when his disciples said, Lord, should we call down fire on this town in Samaria? And he goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. Did the Son of Man come to destroy or to save? And Elisha, in an Old Testament way, said, no, don't destroy them. Set food before them, feed them, and then send them home to their master. And that's exactly what they did. And, 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 and what I just shared with you is important because as we get down into uh, verse uh, 23, notice, it says, Then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. But notice the very next verse. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. That seems like a, a contra contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, read those two verses back to back. Forget the little heading that you see in your new King James Version Bible because the, the King James doesn't have that little heading that's nicely there for us. But notice, verse 23, the very last sentence. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel because of this kindness that was shown to them. And then the very next verse, and it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army, and went up and besieged Samaria. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? One thing that we have to remember is between verses, there can be quite a bit, quite a bit of time. And this is one of those instances. Probably not a great amount of time, but um, I don't know what time there was, but there was a time interval in between verse 23 and verse 24. You might want to just make note of that. Otherwise, this doesn't make sense. Because Ben-Hadad is a title. It's not a name. Like you and I, I mean, Ben-Hadad, that sounds like his first name was Benjamin and Hadad was his last name, but it's really a title. It literally means son of Hadad, son of Hadad. Hadad was the Syrian false god that they worshipped. 
And so there was Ben-Hadad, and then there was Ben-Hadad, his son. And so there's at least two Ben-Hadads, maybe even a third one. But that's a title of the king of, 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 of Syria, was Ben-Hadad. And there can be one that was definitely at least two, maybe three different men that were named Ben-Hadad. One died, and the other one t- took his name. Follow me? So it can be a little interesting. But notice in verse 24, we're going to read down through verse, uh, 7, verse uh, 2. And then we'll go back and take a look at it. Notice, and it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered his, all of his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until the donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. That sounds like a nice meal. Then as the king of Israel passed by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. And so we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. And then he said, God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphath, remains on him today. Now in verse 32, underline two words or circle them, but Elisha. But Elisha, what was he doing? He was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And so an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You shall not eat of it. And what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. You know, it's one of the things that we need to see in this chapter is just how good God is. God is gracious. And God is loving, and God gives many chances. Some, for some people, he seems to give a lot of chances. Other people, it seems like he gives that many chances, and others, many more opportunities. And, and God, do you understand the grace of this? You know, many people think that the, the, the God of the Old Testament is this God of anger and rage, just ready to smash people, but... Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Father, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not, he's not, hasn't changed. And as we look through the Old Testament, and here's a good example tonight, if, if we'll see it, and I think I'm going to bring it out, and I know you will, just to see how gracious God is to his people. 
a people that have rebelled against him. And we're talking about the northern ten tribes now, not even the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern ten tribes had never ceased from their idolatry. From the time Jeroboam began his reign and made the two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan up in the north, they never ceased to worship Baal and all of these other false gods. They never ceased it. They never ceased from doing it. And yet here is God issuing an olive branch, if you will, throwing a bone to them to bring them back, to woo them, if you will, to himself again. Because the God of Baal is the God of fertility, the God of the storm, the God of the plains, the God of the agriculture. And so they look to Baal for everything. And all along as we've been going through uh, First and Second Kings, you see God making a mockery of their God because their God cannot do what God can do. Only God can call fire from heaven. Only God can heal. Only God can perform these miracles. Only God can open the eyes and see the supernatural. Only God can do that. There's no other being in the universe. And no, Satan can't either because he's not equal with God. He's not equal with Jesus like the Mormons believe. Can you believe that? Can you imagine serving? Uh, you know, anyway, so it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But God is a God of grace, and he's the same today for us. Regardless of how you've blown it this week, regardless of what sin, that whatever that you're struggling with, maybe an addiction of some kind, i got to tell you that God still loves you, and he is still on the throne, and he's still wooing you. He still wants to win your heart. And until you take your last breath, that's going to be God's policy toward you. But we must never continue in sin and play fancy and foot loose with it because God also can judge. And I don't know when he does that. There, there have been Christians that are, are born-again believers, but they have a struggle with cocaine, and they just won't give up the coke. They won't give up the heroin, and they're stuck in it. And, they, and they, for whatever reason, they haven't got on their knees. They, they, they don't even want to give it up. And then God allows them to get a hot shot, and they're dead. And that person goes to heaven. To save the soul, he destroys the body. Sometimes that happens. So we don't know where that line is. We should never flirt with God. And, and there's an invisible line for each of us. And, and I, I pray that I never get close to the line. I, I think before I came to Christ, I was hopping and skipping, doing the double dutch with that line, not even realizing how in much danger I was in. I had so many opportunities when I was younger to die. So many. And yet God preserved me, and I have no idea why. Probably to irritate you people. <laughs> he spared my life so that I could be a, a thorn in your, in your shoe. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But he's a good God. He's a good God. He's extended grace. And you're going to see him doing the same thing. Look at verse 24 again. It says, you know, it happened after Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered his army, went up and besieged Syria. Again, notice how fickle he is. Because remember, in the fifth chapter, wasn't it Elisha who healed his commander of the army? Remember Naaman, who had a leprosy and he healed his, his commander of his army? God did that. He did that through Elisha. And then also in chapter 6, just as we read, a portion of the Syrian army is spared destruction as they stood before Israel, blind in their capital city, with all of the army of Israel surrounding them. Easy prey. It would have been an easy cleanup operation. 
But it seems that mercy and grace only lasted for so long for the king of Assyria, or king of Syria, excuse me. But then the old man comes out of the box again. Do you have an old man that likes to come out of the box every now and then, even as believers? Is there, is there some thing that you're harboring, some pet sin maybe of yours, and you're good for several weeks, maybe even two weeks, maybe a month, and all of a sudden it just rears its head and it catches you by surprise and you, found you, you find yourself in, in some great temptation, whatever that vice is. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be some sex addiction. And boy, it does. It comes and it rears its head. It's never going to give up. It will never give up. However, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. However, God's grace can get you through that difficulty. What do you do when you're, uh, what you, what you going to do when it comes for you? You know, Bad boys, bad boys, what you going to do? You know, what, what, what do you do? You drop to your knees. You do whatever you got to do to escape. You do whatever you got to do. But it seems like for all that God had, did, had done for the king of Syria and all that God has, has been doing for the kings of Israel, every succession of those kings, God has issued olive branches and tried to minister to them. But notice, there was a great famine in Samaria, verse 25, and they besieged it, which means they surrounded the city. Instead of going in and just obliterating it, depending on the army and its condition, one of the things they would do is just surround a city with the army and just wait and camp out and eat and have you know, fires at night and sing songs with their guitars. And you know, they're just waiting, they're starving them out. So the, the people can't come out of the city, they can't get water, they can't get food, and so eventually they just starve to death. And then they go in when they're weak. And these guys are living high in the hog out in the field because they're slaughtering cattle and having steak every night, eating well, and, and they're all full of iron and, and everyone else is just emaciated and wasting away to nothing. And it was an effective way of warfare. But notice, it got so bad that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. This is called hyperinflation. It almost sounds like today, doesn't it? Yes, but I'll, I won't go there. Now, a donkey's head is one thing, but a cab of dove droppings? There's a particular seed pod that comes from a particular plant, and it's named dove droppings, or sparrow, sparrow's dung. It's, a, it's an herb known by the Arabs called herba alkali. And it could have been this, uh, a pint of these seeds from this particular plant that they would use for food. It could be that. Or it could be literally dove dung because they would often use dung for fires. You know, you could put that in your fire and it was like fuel because there's enough methane in there. You just light a match and you know what happens. So um, these things uh, they use. So whether it was the plant or the dove dung itself, we don't really know. But notice, then the king of Israel was passing by on the wall and he sees the woman. Lord, help, help me. And he's like, if the Lord doesn't help you work, how can I help you? And you can see here the king of, uh, of Israel just obviously at his wit's end. He's despondent. And he's seeing everything that's going on. His heart is just melting inside, knowing that his death is imminent. And he's wasting away just like everybody else. And then the king said, what's troubling you? And then he gives the story about the woman eat, boiling her son. And um, 
And it happened when the, and, and then the, the, the two women were arguing because they ate the one woman's son, but then the next day the other woman didn't want to give up her son. I mean, think of how desperate you have to be to eat an infant. And then he, they see as he goes by that they can see that he's got sackcloth underneath himself and he tore his clothes because of that horrible situation that was happening to them. And perhaps he remembered what God had said a long time ago in the book of Leviticus. And I want you to write a couple scriptures down next to this. It's in Leviticus chapter 26, but specifically verse 29, and write down also Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 53. Deuteronomy chapter 28, 49 through 53, but first let me read to you Leviticus 26. Now, uh, or 27, or 20, yes, Leviticus, tw- <laughs> Leviticus 26, verse 27 through 29, I'll just read it to you. This whole entire chapter in Leviticus is, is, is God basically upbraiding the children of Israel for their disobedience and their idolatry. And this is just one part of it. And perhaps the king of Israel, Joram, is probably, maybe he's thinking, maybe something is clicking in his mind when he sees these women arguing over their sons about who's going to cook their son next. Because it said in Leviticus 26, verse 27, And after all this, if you do not obey me, the Lord says, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chasten you seven times for your sins. And here it is. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. This is the judgment that you are going to experience if you deny me and disobey me. You're going to be in situations where you're going to be forced to do these things. And what we just read is actually a fulfillment of that prophecy. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, it says, and again, the context of this particular passage is what would be happening when Babylon uh, comes against Jerusalem. But notice what he says. It's a very similar thing. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar... From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you, and they shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord God your God has given you and you shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you (laughs) that's pretty horrible isn't it that was God's way of saying If you continue to disobey me and continue to serve other gods, this is what's going to happen to you. He told them hundreds of years prior, this is what's going to happen. And lo and behold, it does. And it did. It happened here in the passage that we're looking at in 2 Kings 7. And it also happened when Babylon came against Jerusalem. They laid a siege to them for 20 years. Did you know that? 
In 606, they began the siege, and it wasn't until 586, 20 years later, that they finally go in and, and burn the place down and take captives. And during that time, that 20 years, there was at least three deportments of Jews, Daniel and uh, Ezekiel being among those, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being sent away to Babylon as captives. But this is the judgment. So not only would Israel be judged by another nation, but conditions in a siege would deteriorate so quickly, the famine would be so great that people would eat their own infants in order to stay alive. And, you know, if you think about it, an infant is not going to last as long as an adult because of the the nutrition that they need so desperately. So a child would starve quicker than an adult. And so now they got a, a decision to make. Well, do we continue? And this is really hard to talk about, right? I mean, this is really the unthinkable. And think about this, that God allowed that. God allowed that. And then I think about what God has allowed me to go through, and somehow I can say within my heart, God, you're not fair. (laughs) You're not fair. I live in America. I shouldn't have to go through this stuff. And he's like, well, I let my own people eat their own babies because of their sin. So, what's, what's your problem now, Mr. Kellogg? <laughs> I allow you to go through some discomfort and you're already crying and complaining to me and I've, the first century church has gone, gone through things that are just unthinkable. And yet I'm crying because I don't get my Dunkin' Donuts coffee in the morning. And I have at times cried <laughs> because I haven't had my coffee in the morning. But anyway, this is serious stuff. It's serious stuff. So then he said, uh, so now the king of Israel is so mad, he says, God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. This sounds awfully like what Jezebel pronounced against Elijah. Do you remember that? These are the words of Jezebel. It's in 1 Kings 19, verse 1 and 2. And Ahab told, and this is after the Elijah had vanquished the 450 prophets of Baal. And then it says, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. She sent a message and she said, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So filled with rage and anger. And it's interesting, too, that Jezebel and Ahab, they served the same God as Joram several you know, years later, several, several years later. Served the same God. Joram, he's serving the same God. He never, they never ceased serving Baal. And even though Joram, the king of Israel, piously wore sackcloth, this sign of mourning and repentance, it seemed that Uh, It was all in vain because of his hatred toward Elisha, God's servant. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting how it's easy for us to go through some kind of outward sign of repentance when inwardly we are unchanged. But we like to put on the show. We like to put on the external so everybody can see us. And they're like, oh, he's he's so holy. And deep in his heart, he's still harboring hatred. Do you see the, the hypocrisy of the whole thing? He's wearing sackcloth because of what's happening, and now he's, he's, he wants the head of God's servant. It's, it's like his repentance means nothing. You might as well take off the sackcloth and put it aside and wear your normal clothes because you're just a hypocrite, Joram. But it doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop us. 
And the Bible calls this worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this. For godly sorrow, what does it do? It produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So when I get caught and and then I'm crying because I got busted in whatever I'm doing, that's crocodile tears. That's called worldly sorrow. But when I get caught and and I repent and I'm broken about it and I truly do repent, that's godly sorrow. Do you see the difference? One is, I really am sorry, God, that I'm such a fool. And the other one is, I'm sorry I got caught. Sorry I got caught. But there's no change of heart. A person who gets caught and there's no change of heart, that's worldly sorrow. But David had godly sorrow, didn't he, when he murdered Uriah and had the affair with Bathsheba? He cracked like an egg. He did. He was a man after God's own heart because he never did it again. And David, unlike his son Solomon, never had a problem with idolatry. Notice that? He always served God, even though he made some pretty horrible mistakes. And yet, David is in glory. You're going to meet him one day. I can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to that. But Elisha, verse 32, was sitting in his house and the elders with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him, but before the messenger came to him, he said to his elders, do you see how this man, uh, son of a murderer, has sent someone to take my head? And so, you know, they block the door, and, and, and then the king comes, and the, mas- and the servant, or the messenger comes, and while he was talking with him, there was the messenger. And the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And, you know, th- this is kind of a strange verse, but it might better be put this way. Should I not now surrender to the Syrians and then slay the prophet who has so long deluded me with vain hopes? That's really what he's saying. And it's kind of an an unusual wording there. But the king was obviously despondent at the end of his rope. Have you ever been to the end of your rope? When all your hope is faded and you're just discouraged and you're just like, you know, I can, you know, whatever. I don't even care if I die today. Lord, would you strike me dead? There's been times that I've even asked that in the last four years. <laughs> At night, I'm just like, Lord, just, just kill me. Do me a favor. And just end my life. Because you get so discouraged. You get despondent at times. And you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm done. <laughs> but now Joram is blaming Elisha for this calamity that's come upon Israel. Jer- Joram, the king of Israel, is thinking, if Elijah would only have allowed me to kill the Syrian army when, they were, when we had them surrounded in Samaria, so Joram needed someone to blame instead of, instead of taking the responsibility of his own idolatry and leading the people of Israel into idolatry, he uses Elisha as his whipping boy or his scapegoat for his anger due to the predicament that they were in. He's seeing all this and it's killing him inside and he's blaming it on Elisha. It's because of that that man of God. And isn't it true, the flesh rarely condemns itself. It will look and it'll blame others first. Not me, it's your problem. You're the reason that I did what I did. The devil made me do it. 
the blame game. It started back in the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis 3? It says the Lord called Adam. Listen to this. This is, this is comical. This will actually make you laugh. At least I think, if you're sick like I am. Um, it says, then the Lord called uh, to Adam. This is in Genesis 3, verse 9. The Lord, called, uh, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Of course God knew where he was. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Hmm, we haven't talked about that, Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman you gave me. She gave of me of the tree and she ate it and she gave it to me. So God looks from Adam, he looks over at Eve, and then Eve says, what is, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. Hello, 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 hello. So now you've got Adam blaming his wife, his wife blaming the serpent. Poor serpent. Satan is standing there going, <laughs> and it was his fault. It all started with him. But the blame game, boom, boom, boom. And God pronounces judgment on each of them, starting with Satan, then to the woman, and then to the man. But the blame game is nothing new. And so Joram is blaming Elisha for all of this calamity. And then in verse 7, uh, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 7, then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, this, this siege, this famine that everyone is going through is not going to last. In fact, it's going to be done by this time tomorrow. There would be deliverance and there would be salvation and so remember the officer uh, whose hand the, the, the king leaned on, uh, the, king of, um, the king of Israel, the man of God says, look, if, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said to him, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And it's amazing to me how the Lord just immediately spoke this prophecy of, against this man. And something that we don't always understand is what God is doing in a person's life. The Lord may have been dealing with this officer for quite a long time. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us all of the history of this man. But there was a reason why God dropped the hammer so quickly. From our perspective, it looks like, well, what did the guy do? He was probably a saint. No, he wasn't a saint. This officer of the king of Israel, he had to be just as much of an idolater as Joram was. But God drops the hammer on him. But we don't know all the, all the history of this man. But I do know one thing. We can trust God. Can you trust God? Is he or is he not a good judge? He is. He's a good judge. And I'm so glad. He's the only fair one in all of the universe. He is the best judge. Would to God that God would show up in every courtroom in America. <laughs> Everyone's saying, no, I'm guilty, or I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. The Lord's not, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're not guilty. You really are guilty. He can, he can say it with authority and with assurance. But is anything too hard for the Lord, for him to turn hyperinflation and turn it on its head the very next day? Is God is able to change things on a dime. He's able to do it. 
And God, through Elisha, is going to prove again that he is far superior to the helpless and impotent God, Baal, that Joram and his forefathers and all of Israel have worshipped. And we're going to see that into the next chapter. So let's look at uh, verse 3 now. And let's just, uh, for the sake of time, we're just going to read it as we go. So, so now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And so this, we're still in, speaking of Samaria while this siege is going on. While this um, uh, famine is happening, the lepers naturally are going to be outside the walls of the city, probably in tents, living there. Nobody wants to be around them. They're out there. And there's four of them at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we're going to die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. They're going to feed us. They're going to take us captive. And if they kill us, we only die because we're going to die anyway. And they were just making a very logical conclusion. We're going to die here. We might as well see what they'll do. Perhaps we'll live and, and they'll feed us. So they arose at twilight, which is in the very, right as the sun is going down in the day, they rose up at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they came to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise. Notice this. The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. The noise of a great army. Was there a great army? No. But God caused them to hear it. So that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And, you know, I wonder if that, remember that army that was surrounding the Syrian army when Elisha and his servant, those guys were still hanging around. <laughs> they must have been still hanging around and God says, hey, don't go up to glory yet. I got some more work for you guys. Got another, I need to dispatch you another time. They're going to hear it, but they're not going to see it. The Lord is expert in spiritual warfare, and he's also an expert in psychological warfare. Most of the battles in, in history throughout the uh, United States, world wars, stuff like that, there is so much of this in, in wartime. Psychological, there's certainly a spiritual warfare going on, but psychological warfare and God is a master at both of them. You see it in Joshua. You see it in other times of the Bible. And um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and God has all kinds of things up his sleeve. He did the same thing in the life of David. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5, just really quick. The Lord did the same thing uh, for David. And this was shortly uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. You can write that in your Bible next to this section. I'll read it to you now. But this was a battle against the Philistines shortly after David was anointed king at Hebron. And notice what it says. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. <clears throat> Excuse me. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. Notice, David inquired of the Lord. That's a really great idea. 
He prayed to the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. I would encourage you to inquire of the Lord and encourage me to inquire of the Lord. It's always good when we inquire of the Lord. And David did. And notice, God answered him. And David says, will you deliver them? Or David says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines in your hand. Great. David and all his men grabbed their glocks. And they put them in their holsters and they take off toward the Philistines. And David went to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there and David and his men carried them away. But notice verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And at this point, most people think, oh, we'll just do what we did last time. Let's just do the same thing. It worked. It worked. So let's just do the same thing. We don't have to think about it. Let's just do the same thing. Piece of cake. We'll, we, we've done this. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And so <laughs> the Philistines, they went up again, and therefore David inquired of the Lord, and thank God he did, because God had a different plan. Notice this. He didn't presume upon what had happened before. David inquired of the Lord, and he said, um, shall I go up? And, he, and God told him, you shall not go up. But here's the battle plan, guys. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you. Notice, he's going to go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, and the Lord, as the Lord commanded, and they drove them back and slaughtered them. There was no physical army there. <clears throat> other than David and his men. But God says, I'm going to go out before you, and I'm going to totally wig their brains out. They're going to be so scared that they're not going to know which way is up, and they're going to be looking around, and trying, they're going to be so confused, and I'm going to psychologically just tweak them, and they're going to be easy pickings for you. It wasn't a fair fight. And hallelujah for that. I'm all for God coming to our help, because it isn't a fair fight, because you plus God is... A majority. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Everybody say that. Unstoppable. You plus God is unstoppable, and he is always victorious. Always. Spot on. Even when I fail, he is victorious. Never forget that. But you minus God, you better pack up and go home. Because it's not going to end so well for you without God. But with God with you, supermajority. I love that. So back in our text, therefore, verse 7, they arose, they fled at twilight, they left the camp intact. These Syrians, they heard the sound of this army that they they couldn't see, but because it was dark, they they heard it. God was freaking them out. They they spazzed out. They start running for their lives, realizing that they're going to die. And they left their tents, their horses, their donkeys. They fled for their lives. And then these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp. And when they went to one tent, they ate and they drank. Of course, because they were starving to death. By the time they go into this one tent, they see you know, uh, the filet mignon and the, and the corn on the cob already ready for them there. And they just sit down and they gorge themselves. And then it gets even more interesting. They went into one tent, ate and drank. They carried away from it silver and gold and clothing. 
And they went and they hid them somewhere. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also. And they went and they hid that. So now they're, they're, they're greed. They've satisfied their stomach. And now they're hoarding some gold. And then all of a sudden they said to one another, uh, we're not doing right right now. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment's going to come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So their conscience, wonderful how the Lord does that, their conscience begins convicting them due to their selfishness and their greed. And notice that the first thing they thought of was not the city or the other people or the king or himself. What's the first thing they thought of? Themselves. Self. Oh, wonderful self. All they thought about was self. Calgon, take me away. And no one would blame them for eating, certainly, and returning back to Samaria to share the good news because they were starving, but they made two different installments of hiding silver and gold and clothing. They also were no doubt poor, so this became a great temptation to him. But isn't it true what the Bible says? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. <laughs> Verse 10, so they went and they called to the gatekeepers of the city and they told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied. And in in the tents, they were intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and he said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And the king was thinking that this was a ruse of the Syrians. But it indeed was not. It was great deliverance. Great deliverance for a people and a king who were idolaters. Enter the grace of God. Was he not gracious? In letting these idolaters, these ones who had, who had resisted him and continued to serve false gods, they never stopped, and yet it doesn't stop God from helping them and giving them, throwing a bone to them, loving on them. You know, I love that verse that says, the Lord causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And why does he do it on the unjust? Because he wants to win their heart. They will never be able to stand before God and say, Lord, you were never gracious to me. You were never kind to me. And the Lord's going, oh, no, I was. Let's reveal, let's roll back the tape, shall we? Play. Oh, look at there. That's me giving you guys food. And remember that gold and silver? Yeah, that was from me too. But I'm not a gracious God. I'm just a mean God. So one of his servants answered and said, Please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they have either become like all, look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. In other words, send out these men to see if this is so, because we have nothing else to lose. 
We have only to gain. And if they die, they're going to die in here. They might as well take the chance, right? And so, uh, and if God had not spoken to Elisha concerning this in verse 1, remember what it said in verse 1 of this chapter. God had given the prophecy of what he was going to do. But did anybody listen? They didn't listen. They could have stayed right there where they were and just waited And when the sun came up, they could have just walked out there and saw all of that plunder and taken it to themselves. You know, if God hadn't told Elisha and prophesied that they were going to be delivered and supplied with food and and clothing and, and silver and gold, if he had not done that, then certainly what they're doing would be a logical thing to do in the natural. Just send out a few. Because if they get ambushed and they don't come back, then we know that it was a ruse. Instead, it revealed again, once again, the unbelief of the king of Israel. Notice how Elisha's prophecy didn't produce any faith in the king of Israel. And yet God used Elisha. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about spiritual gifts and It says, but the manifestation, this is 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, it says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, notice, for the profit of all, not for the individual, but for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To, a, to another, different kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. But the same spirit working in all. And here God, in the Old Testament, gives his prophet this gift momentarily. He just gives it to him, the prophecy. The spirit of God imparting the prophecy. Verse 14, therefore they took two chariots with the horses and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army saying, go and see. And so, and they went from them to the Jordan and indeed all the roads. So if you think of this, here is, uh, if you were to look at a map and you had the Galilee up here in the north and you had the sea of, or the, um, I'm sorry, the sea of Galilee up here and the Dead Sea right here, uh, the uh, Samaria would be about right in the center over here on the eastern side, uh, western side of the Jordan River. So basically what happened is they went out to uh, about 25 miles from Samaria. Uh, they went up a little bit to the north, and then they um, actually from, yeah, they w- went down uh, yeah, to the north a little bit and then over about 25 miles to the Jordan River. And they see along the road all of this stuff. They see the the garments and the weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And so the messengers returned and they told the king. And then the people went out and they plundered the tents of the Syrians. And so, guess what? What God had said came true. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel according, notice, underline this, according to the word of the Lord. And you can put... Chapter 7, verse 1 there, because that's where God gave to Elisha that prophecy. And it gets even more interesting because he also told that officer of the king what was going to happen to him, that he would see it, but he would not taste of it. And so now the king had appointed the officer on whom he leaned on to have charge of the gate. Now think of this. 
the gate of Samaria is there. It's, there's one way in and one way out. So Joram puts that man, his officer, at, in charge of the gate. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're in a building and you're standing in front of the only entrance to a, to a, a place and, and there's a fire inside and you're standing there, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be a rug. You're going to be a, a you're going to be run over. You're going to have Nike and Puma and all kinds of insignias all over you as people run over you. And that's exactly what happened. You had a hungry, desperate people who were starving. They find out there's food out there. All I got to go out is a few miles into the uh, Jordan Valley and I can have all I can eat. And then we got all this silver and gold and these clothing. And God blessed them. And notice the, the mercy of God too. He didn't even kill the Syrian army. Do you see that? Once again, their lives are spared. They lose their goods because they were idolaters too. But God uses the goods of an evil group of people to help his own people who had become evil. Isn't that interesting? How can God use an evil nation like Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, this evil you know, nation and this evil idolatrous king, he's going to use that hammer to hammer his own people. And then God will turn around and judge Babylon for what they did. It almost seems unfair. But their hearts were such. God didn't make them come against his people. In a sense, he did, but he didn't, he, you, know, you know what I'm saying? He, he, he allowed circumstances to happen, but their own will was engaged. They, wanted, they hated them. They wanted to siege them. They wanted to take over their land. And God was in that process. He just allowed man to be his nasty self, and he didn't intervene. He just allowed it to happen. He allowed the hammer to come upon his own people, and then God would ultimately judge Babylon again for doing it. And only God can do that. But God didn't make the Babylons, the Babylonians do that. They had a will involved here. That's what I'm saying. They had a will, but God knew what they were going to do. That's, that's a mind twister, isn't it? And so the king had appointed the officer on whose uh, hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And so it happened, verse 18, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two seas of barley. So really from verse 18 now through verse 20, it's really recapping, if you will, what we learned in the first two verses of this chapter. So verse 18, 19, and 20, just a recap of those first, uh, verse 1 and 2 of this chapter. And it says, Then after the officer had answered the man of God and said, "Look uh, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. They trampled him because the news of the food and the provision was there. And again, chapter 7 tonight really just reminds me again, it just highlights uh, God's faithfulness and his grace toward not only the king of Israel, but also the people of God, even though they were rebellious and completely in error. And the sad thing is, is that the king and the people continued to be in disobedience and in error. You know, there's an awful thing that happens when God is gracious and 
compassionate to us and we turn around and we spurn that offer and we continue, in a, in a sense, rejecting him when he has done some great thing for us, when he's blessed us in some great way. And that's just the typical heart of man, ungrateful, unthankful, unholy. But you know what? As we come upon the Thanksgiving season, we've got lots to be thankful for, don't we? We've got a lot to be thankful for. I am so thankful. I really, truly am. And the more I grow, the, the older I get, the more I'm, I'm so thankful for being born in this country, this great and awesome country that we have. Such an amazing experiment. And God loves us. He loves you. And I'm so glad that I know Jesus in this country. And I'm so glad he gave me his spirit. I'm so glad he allowed me in his great, great mercy to be in the ministry, which I could never deserve. I could never deserve it. I don't even have the skills and the ability. I still don't. I'm still, the Lord's still working. But I'm so thankful for that. And, and then to see the Lord throwing the king of Israel and the people of Israel a bone, and yet it didn't even produce repentance or a change of heart, I love what it says in James. It says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy. Giving to us what we could not deserve. With, or excuse me, withholding from us that which we deserve. That's mercy. And then giving us what we could never deserve. That's grace. I could never deserve it. They deserved to die, and yet he withheld judgment. The Syrian army deserved to die because of their idolatry and their paganistic ways. They deserved to die. And the Lord just had a sound of an army that opened, opened their senses to it, and they fled, and they lived. And his own people who were involved in darkness now get this opportunity by God's grace to eat and to have money and to have changes of clothing, which was a form of payment back then, too. And so I can't think of a better way for us to celebrate communion. Sarah, if you want to come on up, and we'll, we'll take communion. But the mercy of God, as we take these elements tonight, the bread and the cup, the mercy of God is demonstrated in his Son, right? Jesus Christ on the cross. Instead of judging us for eternal damnation, which I deserve, I know that I deserve eternal fire forever, where the moth or where the the where the the fire is never quenched and where the, the worm dies not. That's what I deserve. And I hate to say it, but you deserve that too. But aren't you glad that he didn't give that to us? Instead he poured the wrath on his son once and for all. Once he did it, there's no more need for him to beat you up or to judge you for what you did because he took out all the punishment on his son. Christians, we need to believe that because oftentimes when we blow it, we think that somehow we've got to atone for our sin, but it's already been atoned for. We simply have to confess it and then turn away from it and, ask, and confess it and ask him to forgive us. And what is the promise? If we confess, he is faithful to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the best deal in the world. It is the best deal. In the upper room that night before he was taken, you know, they just had a normal Passover meal. 
And it was something that they were all accustomed to. But remember, Jesus did something that night that had never happened before at a Passover meal. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And, and take it and eat it. And when we take the element of the bread, what we're basically doing is we're, we're acknowledging the death of Christ. That even before he died, he said, this is, this is my body, which was, notice the past tense, was broken for you. <laughs> but it hadn't happened yet. But in his mind, in his heart, it was already a done deal. There was nothing that was going to prevent him from being on the cross. Even Pilate saying, I find nothing wrong in this man. Isn't that amazing? And yet he still got crucified. But his, his body was broken, and that's what he did. He took that Kabbalah, Chabala bread, not Kabbalah bread, that's a whole different false religion, but he took the Chabala bread, and he broke it, and he tore it off, and he handed it to the others, and they took it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And so let's take that, that element now. I think I prefer the Chabala bread. Is that, is that, am I pronouncing it right, Pastor David? Chabala, is that Chabala bread? Is that, what? Kala? Kala bread, okay. But then he takes the cup and he said, this is the blood of the New Testament, of my, my blood. A symbolic token of what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. And there is no greater purity of blood than the blood of Jesus Christ. The only one who could have paid the price there's no other blood, do you understand, in all of the universe that could be atoned perfectly once, once and for all, but by the blood of God, Jesus Christ. I am so thankful for that, aren't you? So as we take this, we bring it down into our innermost part of our being, saying, Lord, I believe in everything that you said. I believe in everything that you did. I believe in you and everything about you. I believe it. And, I'll prove, and, I, and I'm, and I'm going to demonstrate that by taking this right to the center of me. So let's do that. Lord, thank you for being such an awesome God to us. And thank you for the word, Lord, how it just encourages us, Lord, and how it just shows us, Lord, that we're, we really haven't changed in the few thousand years that uh, we've been around the human race, Lord. We, we are all the same. And Lord, uh, the exhortation, Lord, the... Uh, is all the same for us, Lord. And uh, thank you for being patient with us, Lord. Thank you that for everyone here, Lord, I pray that you bless and encourage them tonight and tomorrow, Father. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said?